does it deliver on what you want to do because if it doesn't it's just noise and taking a board on that journey and taking ourselves on that journey and making sure that we're all moving forward is, is really important. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Kirk Sargent, CEO of First Foundation. It's a charity that helps talented and disadvantaged young people reach their absolute full potential. They remove the barriers to success by bringing together the collective power of businesses, schools, individuals, and students. Kirk and his team have massive reach despite limited resources. You'll enjoy the episode. I certainly enjoyed my conversation with Kirk. Before we jump into the show, can I just ask you a small favor? Whatever platform you're on, whether you're on Spotify, Apple, can you please hit follow? It really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Kirk Sargent, very warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Hey, it's really great to be here, Mark, and great to be spending some time with you this morning. Yeah, absolutely. You're the CEO of First Foundation. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Well, you know, if I was, I was jumping in the elevator, I only had 30 seconds, it'd be our, our job is to be a connector between the talent in one part of society and the opportunity in another. But, you know, more formally in this, in our strategy, the vision is an, an old where everyone can succeed and thrive and lead. And then how we do that is strengthening the pathways, opportunities and choices that really empower young people. And so, you know, a, a big part of our job and the, the young people that we're really working with are students from low-income households, um, don't have family members who've been off to university in, the, in their past or surrounding them. And we just, we work with them to pick them up in year 12 and walk with them through the next four years as they make that transition not only from school to tertiary and career, but from adolescence to adulthood. It's a you know, really super piece of work. Wonderful. And how do you do that? The Kaupapa actually hasn't changed since we were established in 1998. So we partner with generally a corporate partner, but not just corporates. Increasingly, we've got private philanthropy stepping up into the space. They provide the funding for us that enables us to then provide the young person basically three pillars of support. Financial assistance that they can utilise in their first, second and third year of university. A mentor who will walk alongside them through that um, journey. And it's just an external uh, trusted adult um, in their life. And the third part is um, exposure to that world of work. And all of those things are connected together by the support of my team who just do an amazing job on a daily basis. Yeah. And so removing barriers for people to be the best version of themselves and to succeed? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. One of the jobs I did, I've been in this role for four years, and one of the things I did in the really early days is spent a lot of time talking to the alumni, people who'd been through the program. And it was really interesting to talk to them around the financial assistance side of that because and specifically ask them those questions about the financial assistance because when i spoke to them they never spoke about the financial assistance being the enabler for them going off to study but if we drill down onto that 
what they did say is that, and it was always the carrot for them applying for our program, but they it gave, by, by getting a scholarship that provided financial assistance to them, it gave them permission to really explore a career or studying in a tertiary environment. And equally, it gave the families permission to let them go to university or a tertiary environment. So financial assistance is a really key part of our program. Interesting you say about permission. That's that's fascinating, actually. Like a collective like child and or young person and family, like it somehow made that transformative difference about the path they would take. Yeah, that's right. You know, increasingly we've heard over the last three years as the cost of living has increased, the impact of COVID on household income. We've heard a lot of narratives from schools around students just having to go and be another income for those families. And so what this does is it means that they, you know, don't need to be in into that role. And so they can look at an intergenerational change for that family, you know, moving from a, a low, potentially a low wage to a high wage economy for that family and that community. Yeah, absolutely. And transformative. In terms of, you know, the last few weeks, I know you're, you've been spending a lot of time with your graduates and you had your, as we discussed before we came onto the podcast, your cup filled up completely by all of the interaction you've had with them. Tell us a story about a young person that has been through the program and is, uh, things have really changed for them and they're, and they're finite. It's funny how you define success in this, um, right? Um, it's, it's, um, we've got a whole, you know, we've got an enormous number of stories now of people whose lives just uh, really been changed. I got an email this morning from a young woman who came into the program in 2020. She's now in an architectural firm up in Whangarei and just being really thankful for those opportunities. Last Friday, I was down with the Bioengineering Institute, Auckland Bioengineering Institute downtown and met up with one of our scholars who was supported by Fletcher Building. And, you know, we were having a chat about his journey and his journey with First Foundation, but actually his personal journey through university and the decision points that he's uh, he's had along the way and actually the role of mentors in supporting that. So Max got a degree in biomedical engineering from the University of Auckland and had finished with us at, at this stage, but had that real dilemma of do I continue on a doctorate or do I continue or go into employment and so he actually sat down with his mentor who was I passed that mentoring it was a you know a trusted friend of his and he was helping him you know just work through what's the worst case scenario of either option which gave him the confidence to progress with doctorate in biomedical engineering and he's, and he's doing a really fantastic piece of work but we've also got though like, I, I remember one of the first uh, young people that I mentor, and he's not a young person anymore. He, he was a Spark scholar, and he came into our program about ten years ago, fifteen years ago. He did his work experience with Spark, and Spark recognised um, just raw talent in this young person to the point that they offered him a job. And he so he stopped coming into our program, but has continued on in a very meaningful career with uh, Spark and doing very well. But he still attributes that success for that being the introduction between himself and spark so you know there's these stories come in in many guises and in many forms but yeah look as you said we've we did have our award ceremony a couple of weeks ago and we had a hundred and uh, about 118 young people there who are either 
finishing their four years with us or starting the journey. And, and all of them are wonderful stories and amazing young people in their own right. The barriers you talked about. So one of them was around economics and, and expectations. Mm-hmm. And what are the other barriers that you see to young people maybe taking the route they most want to or you know, taking the, maybe the difficult route initially, but it'll end them in a better place? What do you see? It's quite complex, but one of the one of the key ones, um, Ministry of Education did some research just recently, and they looked at the careers that young people see in the world, and and they basically were able to categorise them into just ten different careers, and one of them being a professional sports person. Um, when I, when I was talking to um, the founder Steve Carden about this, and he he's got this really neat quote, but he's saying one of the things we've learned is that it's it's, re- it's a real poverty of aspiration. And it's not because these young people aren't aspirational. It's just that their world is not beyond those 10 careers. And so you and I know that you hit university and suddenly you realise there's a 1,000 careers and then you hit the workforce and there's 10,000 different careers that you could go into. So the barriers is, is often restricted by their world experience. So that's one of the jobs that my team does really well is through the mentors, we get them to connect into a whole range of different opportunities, which is that, you know, the pathways, opportunities and choices that empower them. We just get them to see that there is all of these other options ahead ahead of them. I'll, t- I'll tell you a little story around that. And, and one of our, one of the things that was really hard about our job actually is that we get about 480 applications every year for a very limited number of places. Last year was 80 places. This year we hope to be slightly north of that. A really high number of them come in saying, I want to be a doctor. And the reality is that some of them will be amazing doctors, but actually some of them, that's not necessarily the right career path for them. And it's not necessarily them saying that they want to be a doctor, but it's their community saying that they want to be a doctor. And so our job is really to say, yeah, okay, uh, medicine's a great pathway, but there's a whole lot of other things, pathways that you can take that would be really meaningful, would tap into their personal identity and values really well and lead to an incredibly meaningful career heading, um, heading moving forward. Yeah. In terms of selection, like how do you, you know, I'm sure you're oversubscribed, but tell us a little bit about how you, you know, win a scholarship, get that support, get the lift. Yeah, you're right. We're well oversubscribed. And we've got a we've got a brand new strategy and that one of the lines is in there is scholarships for all. So it's for all of those who meet our criteria, we want to be able to create an opportunity for them through First Foundation. But if we look at what are the core factors that we make decisions on, it's household income, it's their academic talent. So they need to be able to demonstrate to us that they have every likelihood of being successful with the right support if they were to go through university journeys. And how they demonstrate those two things is, number one, is they um, tell us what they got in NCEA level one or equivalent as part of their application. And we say that it needs to be at merit or excellence. Secondly, the household income, they make a personal um, statement to us, the students do, and then as we move through the application process, then we need to reach out to the parents who need to make a disclosure of their household income. And we've got some general guidance in our application, which is that the household income will be 75000 for one or two dependents and 95000 for more than two dependents. 
and that, that gives us uh, making sure that we're not getting 2,000 applications, uh, really. We saw in our 2022 applicants was the average household income was 62,000 and the average number of people per household, including parents, was 5.5. So quite large households and quite a low household income on, in terms of national averages there. So those are the two um, key things. And we work really closely with all of our school partners and they refer the young people on to us. And often you'll find us going back to those schools, just getting points of clarity or actually talking to them about who would they recommend going forward when it becomes a really tough decision for us. So that's uh, the criteria that goes into the scholarship. The process uh, is really long-winded, Mark, in that they've got to provide all of this evidence, we shortlist down, and then they've got to do an interview very much to what like what we're doing right now. We give them three questions that they have to answer. It's looking down the, a camera. It's not necessarily what is definitely not straight to us. Um, they're just videoing that, so we get a really good sense of the person and, and the personality. We then tie all of that information together, and then with our scholarship partners, we may take somewhere between three and five people out to the scholarship partners and introduce them, and some of them will be interviewed, or most of them will be interviewed by the scholarship partner, and the scholarship partner ultimately makes the decision about who they will support for the next four years. And those scholarship partners, crucial. Tell us a bit, because you're a small organisation, you know, overachieving, if you like. Tell us a bit about the organisation, how it's funded, how you, you know, keep the lights on, how you pay the, for the bits that aren't directly related to scholarships. And I guess the scholarship partners pay for those. But tell mm. us a bit about the organisation, how you guys operate. <laughs> yeah. And it's always evolving, isn't it, Mark? Um, and you probably, you probably hear that with every charity as they've gone through. We... Four years ago, we looked at financial sustainability for the organisation and wanted to make sure that we were doing not just good work, but we're doing good work now and into the future. And so we've looked at a whole range of ways of diversifying that. We, The beauty of our model is actually by us just doing our work, we actually cover about 65 to 70% of the income that we need to operate. So what I mean by that is our work is highly relational with our corporate partners and our philanthropic partners and they provide the financial assistance but also the support to the organisation to do our work and so by us engaging with them and engaging with the young people it actually funds that 65 to 70%. We've increasingly been growing a individual donor campaign within the organisation so you know, we've got, as you, as you alluded to earlier, we've got a huge number of really neat stories of young people who are absolutely smashing it out there in the world and are going to smash it. And so people really love that and are investing in that. So we've moved from or to about $150,000 worth of donations annually and still seeking to grow that part of the business. We've got a number of high net worth individuals who just really believe in a better New Zealand and so they're investing in us as well. And the other one is the classical grants and trusts for the organisation. So that's about 25% of our funding comes from there. But if we go back to that financial sustainability and the scholarships for all, we did some work about three years ago and worked out that if we continue to grow, we could actually get the bulk of our income coming from just doing the mahi that, that we're doing. 
and then we would use the trusts and grants around the um, very significant small projects that we need to keep the business at the leading edge of where we need to be. And you, I imagine your job is fairly full on. So I know you've got a, a small team, but mm. income generation, you know, delivering the service, you know, working with the alumni, like every day is a different day? <laughs> yeah, I think that's leadership, isn't it? You know, one of the key things that any leader needs to do is uh, resource the organisation strategically. And uh, we are a small team and we've just grown to five FTEs, which is really neat. But we need to be looking at what are our priorities on that, on that weekly basis with a view of what our strategy is about how we are going to achieve what we need to do. So, yeah, every day is different. You know, you know, a big part of my job in the last three years is about making sure that we're really clear about our storytelling role and uh, making sure we're telling the story not only of the work that First Foundation does, but of, you know, the, the amazing work that our philanthropists do or of our corporate partners and how that's really enabling a better future for New Zealand. And then you're getting into, you know, or getting through the finances, making sure you've got all the governance policies in place and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty diverse and evolving. So it's neat. Yeah. And your first role as a CEO, from what I can see, and, and, you know, challenging period of history, if you like. So you joined in April 2019, which you talked about. But mm. what has been the toughest day in the office and how has it changed you? <laughs> well, I think it's... Um, you know, tough days. Like, man, I've got the best job in the world, Mark. Every day I work with amazing young people and really generous people, organisations. So I always fall back on that. But, you know, there are tough days. Like, we had to, to recognise in 2019 and going into 2020 that the world may be a really different place for charities on the whole and First Foundation in particular as we move through there and we had to adjust our business to reflect that potential reality and that was that was really tough you know you had to modify your business change your approach and part of that was also taking the cost structure uh, changing the cost structure of the organization and that meant letting people go in what was going to be potentially a really challenging um, period of time didn't enjoy that but it was important that we were clear about our future and we were working towards that so, you know, those, those are tough days. I think other tough days have been, I'm not naturally a patient person in any role. So you're wanting to get things done and you're wanting to move at speed, but you recognise that there are limitations on the resource that you have. So again, just making those daily adjustments to achieve things. And the team, you know, it was great working with the team because we've got a really pretty clear picture about what that future goal would look like and we, we are stepping our way towards that and recognising that the growth that we envisage and we want to achieve requires us to be delivering quality on a daily basis. So, you know, there's, there's always those inherent tensions, Mark, mm. in doing that. Yeah, scarcity of resources, trying to do difficult things like, you know, change the structure or you know restructure or whatever it is like all of that stuff becomes really hard when you've also doing it with limited resources and just reflecting on on yourself you you said you're impatient what have you learned about yourself what are the positives you've learned about yourself through this period oh a great question look i mean i i've got a great team and i can rely on a on a really great team i think you know, some of the things that we did 
look, we, we did a lot of things right, wrong um, going through, and I think one of the characteristics of what I, I I'm deeply reflective, incredibly curious about the world, and I, you know, can marry those two things up quite well in terms of how we deliver better for the organisation. Yeah, it's a good question, Mark. I might, I might swing back to it. Cool. And it seems like a great space you're in, but if you look back to your past and, and your career history, and also <laughs> the countries that you've lived and worked in, if we change tack for a minute and just look back to the past, is there anything about your upbringing that would kind of give us a hint that you'd end up in a full-purpose making a difference to the world sort of a role? Like, is there anything when you look back? Well, I had an amazing upbringing, um, to be honest. I grew up in small rural Taranaki, uh, North Taranaki, and it was an amazing it was an amazing place to grow up. My parents were fully immersed in the life of the church in Taranaki, the Methodist church. My father was a pharmacist and my mother actively involved in the community. And I think your life is shaped by those those experiences growing up. And, you know, I think one of the things that I remember was that, you know, house was always open. Uh, we, we tended to have good tentacles into the community, we, particularly with Dad in his work as a pharmacist. So he was seeing all parts of society. And it was, wasn't uncommon for us to have another person sitting around the table with us for a meal on a Sunday or, you know, or any day of the week, actually. It's quite common for us to have people, additional people staying in the house. So... I think those things helped shape me. The other thing is that, you know, just working, I w- grew up w- um, walking alongside Te Ao Māori. My parents fostered two young Māori women who I'm very proud to say are my sisters. They came to our family when I was 10 and they were three and they continue to be an active part of our family and, you know, People say, I mean, your family was so great. But I, I kind of think of it in other terms and how much value they brought into our lives and, um, and how we saw the world. I guess, you know, some of the things that you observe also is that the life that I enjoyed is very different from the life that, that my sisters have experienced. And, you know, there's part, part of me that is very strong driver around wanting a more equitable society and of. Um, people to be able to take part of all of, in all of these opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, those yeah. things have very much shaped me. But it did, I didn't have a really a, a great, a clear roadmap for a career as such, but I did have a really clear guidance from my family around making most of every opportunity that came my way. And I, and I did that. So at each step along my career path, which you probably had a look at, you know, opportunities have come along and I've said, oh, that'd be great. It'd be really interesting to do. Yeah. And have done it. So it's led me all over the world. Yeah. In common with a lot of uh, the guests on purposely, non-linear, but, but definitely a focus on education. And that was your initial area of focus? Like you were jumped out? No, it wasn't, no, it wasn't actually. And, and I think um, you might, well, I, my degree at university was um, science and uh, management of science and technology at Waikato University. And one of the things that they require, and they still require, is to have an active integrated work placement as part of your degree. And I was um, flatting with a Fijian guy whose family owned a thousand acres of land and lots of water up in Fiji, but not necessarily utilised. And he said, man, I'd love to have some fish farms up there. So I, I went up to 
up to Fiji and built fish farms with him as part of my science degree, um, which was an amazing experience. And then that led me to realise that I wanted a bit more practical beyond the academic degree. So coming home to New Zealand, got into the building industry and spent about three or four years doing that and really enjoying that that side. Should have, should have done my apprenticeship at that point in time, Mark. But, um, you know, I was just uh, I was just enjoying it. And, th- and that job took me over to Hawaii and building houses over there. So, you know, I talk about surfing breakfast, lunch and tea and building houses in between. Wonderful. But, yeah, it was really neat experience. And then, and then you come home and, you know, you're always going, well, there's things I really liked about that and there's things I, that didn't kind of align so, quite so well. So I did a little stint with what is now was was Vodafone with Bell Self as a customer trainer. And then at that period of point in time in my life, I uh, met my wife. Well, we met at university, but we actually got together as a couple and she was with Ford Motor Company. And so I spent the rest of my next 15 years really traveling and following her career around the world. And that was the opportunity to get into education. They, Ford Motor Company was amazing. They were very um, supportive of the spouses as they traveled and made sure that they could access opportunities. So they got me into a program that looked at my drivers and one of them was education. So through that, I, I became a secondary trained teacher in science and outdoor ed. And that's, uh, that's the rest kind of working in Auckland and then the UK and back to New Zealand. And then as you said, non-linear career into the opportunity that I now have. Yeah, because you talk about publicly around, you know, working with society, but in a creative and innovative ways. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. clearly, you talked about being a deep thinker and um, you're reflective. Although non-linear, were you giving your career some thought around the, the purpose? Like, what's what what's the point of what I'm doing and you know, how am I changing or making an impact on people's lives? Mm-hmm. Not, not. I mean, you were thinking about how your, how you could best use your talents, and and I was really interested. I mean, I love New Zealand. New Zealand's been really generous and kind to my wife and I, and, and to my kids. And so, how do we make a society that continues to be a place that we want to bring up our kids? So you know, and ultimately, if everybody's got the opportunity to participate fully in society, then we'll all benefit from that. I got into, I was given the opportunity to lead the formation of Māori and Pacifica Trades training here in Auckland, and that was just connecting two things together, boom and construction, and then Māori and Pacific being overrepresented in some, some of those negative stats. But that gave me a real insight into the possibility of that intersection of business, of community, and of education, and that's an area that I'm deeply interested in to the point where we probably would describe ourselves as social capitalists now because when businesses do really well, you know, we tend to, or our business will do very well because we can support, support more people coming through. And, um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not sure that we thought deeply, but I was really motivated about things that I knew that were personally very interesting for me that I would be good at and um, that society wanted. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that will continue to, to drive me. So that role with um, the Māori and Pacific Trades training, mm. that one ended in 2018, and then mm. First Foundation popped up, and you know, you, you're well-positioned, aligned. Do you remember going and meeting the trustees and you know, doing the interview and, and sort of how you pitched them, how you'd approach the role? 
Yeah, I do. I remember it. I, um, Rich Easton, who's the board chair, um, he was the board incoming board chair when I was interested in the role. And it wasn't the first time I'd come across First Foundation. I um, it was on the board of Auckland Foundation for a number of years and were introduced to a young man called Ryan King through that association and John and Leone Hines, who at that time were partnering with Auckland Foundation and using their business to deliver great outcomes for Auckland. But we saw um, First Foundation at that time. I just thought, what a, what a great model of partnership between business and community. And so that kind of, it was probably 10 years earlier that planted the seed about that potentially being something that I would like to do. And it was this year, a role in between Martin Pacifica Trades Training and First Foundation, and it was with the City Rail Link where we were looking at the social outcomes. How do we deliver a legacy program and do good at the same time? And unfortunately, or fortunately maybe, the contract with the organisation I was with came to an end as they consolidated into a bigger project. And that meant that I was then looking for another opportunity. And the, one of the trustees, ex-trustees from Auckland Foundation gave me a call and said, hey, look, this job's come up and I think it'd be perfect for it. So that led me to have that, that and very informal conversation, much like this one with Rich Easton. And obviously, Rich liked what he uh, what he heard, and I liked what I heard, and the offer came. So, what surprised you about the role, like from that initial relaxed conversation, and then because it's the first time you had to deal directly or be responsible to a board of trustees, I imagine suddenly you've got to raise enough money to deliver on your mission and, and keep the lights on. There's all these interesting challenges that come with running a, a non-profit and we talked about a scarcity of resources but if you think back like what surprised you most about the role from when you had that initial conversation or interview yes it wasn't um don't, not, not to be contradictory about the money in pacific trades training had a board as well so we reported into that but i think the, the, the key difference here was that board that was an establishment board but it was running underneath um, MIT's infrastructure. No, in First Foundation, you've got to you've got to have all that infrastructure yourself, and the board really is that. But we we learned the importance, the real importance of having clarity of purpose, and um, having a yardstick in which you can then take every decision back to and say, does it deliver on what you want to do? Because if it doesn't, it's just noise. And taking a board on that journey and taking ourselves on that journey and making sure that we're all moving forward is, is really important. And, you know, it's a classic about making sure that you've got great data driving your business. And so there's no surprises. So, yeah, you know, clarity of purpose, good data um, just really helps inform that decision-making that you have going ahead. And yeah, it becomes a North Star, right? It's always something you can come back to and, and judge your decision-making or help inform your decision-making. Like, it's those those things are so important. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so much stuff that you could actually get out there and do, but you've got, you've got to just got to, you've got to be really deliberate and, and purposeful about what you do and is it delivering what you are really charged with doing and the board's been really good at just asking those very simple questions and that hold us to account and um you know very appreciative of that steer that they've provided to us and as you look towards 
the future for Fifth Foundation? Like, where, where do you want to be in 18 months? Like, what, what does the future look like for you guys? Mm. Well, I think it comes back to the, the brand new strategy, um, and that is scholarships for all. So, now, if you look at the numbers across New Zealand, uh, one in five people grow up in poverty. And if we look at the number of students at year 12, there's 50,000 of them studying in year 12 this year. If you were to take a direct translation of that one in five growing up in poverty, you could argue that there's 10,000 people that potentially would meet the criteria for us. I don't think the number is nearly that big for a whole range of reasons. And I don't believe that tertiary study is the only pathway to a meaningful career so but we still think that the number is quite high in terms of potential people that would benefit from the full wraparound support of first foundation so we're looking at how do we grow sustainably delivering quality every time over the next five years it was um we come to the award ceremony it was a, it was a classic where we briefed, briefed steve card and said look you know we're 25 years old we've delivered a thousand opportunities for these young people let's not take another 25 years to deliver another thousand. How about we look at yeah. 10? And he, he stood up and said to, you know, an auditorium of 800 people, what would it take to achieve another thousand scholarships in five years? So, you know, we've got great, great support behind us to be able to do that. Our social media has been running hot. Our emails have been incredibly busy over the last period of time because people are saying, hey, we're, we're keen to be part of this. We stand ready. So mm. the, the next period of time, I think, is, continuing to build efficiency inside of the business so that we can do the work without losing the really important core attributes of what it is that we do. And if you go back to four years when we came into the organisation, you know, I said we're a relationship business. And so we said here's four principles that will drive what we do. We'll connect with people at a personal level. We'll build a community to which they feel they belong. We'll provide an interesting pathway through First Foundation and we'll be really deliberate about what we seek to achieve. And then that was kind of the thing that allowed us to chop a a little bit out of what we did. But the challenge of of scaling is how do you continue to be really personable in your approach to the, not only to the young people, because we need to think about this. We've got 280 young people on our active scholars on our books right now so how do we offer a really personalized service to 280 and then there's 280 mentors who are also on that journey and they equally are deserving and needing of the support of the team and then there's 81 scholarship partners who are the ones who put their hands in their pockets and said look we we're the ones who are going to support here and they've got their own reasons for being in there but they're also deserving of that service from first foundation so it gets you know, not the scaling up to 200 scholarships a year is not just 200 relationships. It's kind of 500 relationships there. Yeah, and it seems like First Foundation is never more needed at the right place, right time, because we've got businesses and industries who are really starting to look at equity mm. in a, at a deep and, and sort of deep and meaningful way. And they're also being hit by, you know, supply issues that have been hit by lack of human capital, they're looking at alternative ways to into which to create pipelines of people to come into school roles. All along job the workplace and jobs are changing. So you guys seem really well placed to help with that, right? F- fulfill that 
and you know potentially grow and 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 sort of extend your reach off the back of it. Yeah, no, I guess I'd answer that in slightly different terms in that, you know, there's a lot of businesses out there who recognise that the communities that they are serving are, are their customers and actually doing this type of work is really good for business. And it's not just their, their economic bottom line, but actually it's good for their well-being of their own employee community and how their organisation um, sees itself. So... Yeah, a lot of those businesses do see us potentially as fulfilling a a role in terms of providing them with skilled labour. But, you know, we're, we're at pains to point out to them really early on because it's slightly disingenuous if a 16-year-old, if they think a 16-year-old is going to, who starts a scholarship with you, is going to continue on when they're 21 and they've seen a really different world um, that, it, that they're going to be part of that organisation three or four years later. But what we do say to them is we've got 280 young people on our books. So if you support one, look, you're getting the whole family here and you can tap into that. And, you know, businesses recognise that maintaining or attracting talent is they need to have a very strong offer for um, the young people. They want to be able to see values and the leadership of the organisation, both in how they operate. So... No, we're really lucky that the organisations we partner with care deeply about the employees, they care deeply about society, and they are actively investing in that future they want. Yeah, and that's exciting to hear. Purpose alongside profit or even over, which is it's great to hear that those businesses are walking towards you. Yeah, I mean, I think is, is, is that the uh, pendulum that we've, we've seen uh, around the world in that you know, I was listening to Sam Stubbs, you know, the interview that you did, and it's it's more than just the business. It's about how you do the business as well that people are really interested in, and that's what they will invest in. So that, that's neat. And you, you see it, and I see it in my kids already, that they're mindful not only of the product, but how, they, how those businesses do their jobs is a really key. So... Yeah, there's some great leaders. There's great leaders across uh, New Zealand who are leading the charge here. And do your kids know what you do? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, have a look at my LinkedIn profile. I, I, I tell them what I do, but um, my daughter's come along to the award ceremony and acted and been a volunteer for us. She loves the work. My son's in year 13 at school. He's friends with the, some of our scholars. Um, and he comes home and tells me um, things that the scholars are experiencing. There. So I think they do know. Um, yeah, and we do, we talk we talk about these young people in terms of being trailblazers versus anything else. So you know, I think I think they like it. My, I think my son wants me to be a millionaire, but you know, that's never going to be. I'm going to rely on him to do that job. <laughs> yeah, one of my other guests said that the you know the children would say to her. Don't CEO me when she was sort of <laughs> trying to get them to do what they want to do. Yeah, um, yeah exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, that, that, that's a good point, actually. No, our model's such an empowerment model, and, and and we kind of live those values. The outcomes need to be the right ones for the young people and for their families and their communities. And so, you know, when we talk, we use the term, depending on the audience, but tēnā ranga, tērā tanga, it needs to be self-determining for them. And, and it's a real challenge of our model, actually, because a young person comes in and, and they're most likely to get a scholarship if they've got clarity of what they want to do. And yet the first thing that we do when we get, when once they are awarded the scholarship is we 
get them to really understand their own personal identity and their values and their drivers and then make three career paths that they could potentially take depending on the circumstances and what they learn. And then the other hard part of that is that they feel completely obligated to their scholarship partner. I wanted to be an engineer, but actually, I know I don't want to be an engineer anymore. I want to be working in a human resources or psychology because that's something that's really interesting to me. And so part of our job is supporting that conversation with a scholarship partner to say, actually, that's okay. That's okay for them to make that decision about their future. And you've, you're an example of that yourself, right? So non-linear, lived in you know, New Zealand, Fiji, Australia, the UK. That's okay to not necessarily know what you're going to do. And, and it's okay to take some time to, to work it out and go on the journey. Yeah, I'll put a caveat on there. It's not okay not to have choices, though. So um, you, every time you make a decision, you, it should be not narrowing the choices that you have for the future, but enhancing them. So, you know, the balance of that is don't be really impulsive around that, but be reflective and, and make sure you've got the right people around you asking the right questions as you go along. Sometimes it's okay to be that, but you should be moving towards a place where you've got more opportunities in the future. And some of those are just economic opportunities. You know, don't take a low-paid job because it enables something. Now, if you could delay that decision and, you know, as Aston Moss Briscoe's reminds me constantly is, you know, we are a highway to a high-wage economy. So making sure that they can be that for their family and then that creates choices for the next generation as well. Absolutely. Kirk Sargent, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.